Well, today is our last day of this sermon series titled God's at War. And for the past several Sundays, we've been really talking at, the, at its core about idolatry. The Bible says, choose this day whom you shall serve. And so there's choosing that happens in our lives. And I think often in church, in the Christian realm, that we, we think that choosing uh, God is just one thing that we do. And then we just allow ourselves to walk in each day without that choosing going on. We make that choice at our salvation to say yes to Jesus Christ. And that's a significant and important choice. But the journey begins each day, my friends. New mercies come. New things come at us all the time. And being a Christian is more than a one-time choice. Following Jesus is putting him on the throne of your life every day. It's a daily choice. And if we're honest, there are many times throughout each day when we have to choose who or what we will worship. Am I going to worship the Lord God? Or I'm going to worship my spouse or another person, significant relationship in my life? Am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship money? Am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship my career? The list can be very, very long and different for each of us. But every day we have this choice. You and I have a choice. And we start, when we start seeing life through the lens of that, who, will I worship the Lord or will I worship somewhere, some, some, something else? Then things just become more and more clear as we look through those lenses. In Luke chapter 18, we see a man that faces a choice in a very direct and very specific way. Let's look at Luke 18 verses 18 through 23. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have a treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. There's three words in the Bible. In Luke and Matthew also tells this story about this ruler. He's rich, he's young, and he is a ruler. Two adjectives, one noun. And they're all pointing to the fact that he was a very successful person. He was a very powerful person. What Jesus is going to do in this passage is put himself in direct competition with this guy's systems of thinking. Direct competition what he loves so much. And Jesus is going to say to this man, you've got to choose, brother. And as we think about this passage... I think it's a challenge to each of us too. This rich young ruler had accumulated a lot. He had achieved. 
he had accomplished. He wants to be on top. He wants to be successful. He is clearly a person of power. And he was probably recognized within that crowd of people that was gathered around Jesus as one who had authority. And we find this guy's voice rising over all the people gathered there. And he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I have to give him credit. That's a pretty good question to ask Jesus. And I think it would be one of the top three things to ask Jesus. If maybe myself, if I was asking Jesus a question, I would say, how do I get eternal life, Lord? It's a very, very good question to ask. What must I do to live forever? But even the way the man asked the question reveals, I, I believe, what, what the God that he worships. It's about the phrase, what must I do? do. People who struggle with the God of success and power are continually being wanting to be the source of their own salvation, my friends. And the word the man uses here is to inherit, or it could be translated into earn. And this is one of the reasons why I think we're so drawn to gods of success, gods of power, because they allow us to put our hope in our own accomplishments, my friends, to put our hope in our own achievements, to think that we can somehow earn our salvation. And we forget about the fact that it's all because of God's grace, his unmerited, unconditional love for us. So we can make success, even spiritual success, at times, a savior for us. This is one of the reasons why I believe most successful people are some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel of grace. The power they have goes to their heads and they build up a wall of self-sufficiency around their lives, around their heart. And in order for them to respond to Christ... And to become a Christian, they have to take that God off the throne of their heart. And that God is, in fact, themselves. It's very hard to take yourself off the throne of your own heart. It's very hard to admit weakness. It's hard to admit that you need help. It's hard to admit that you're unable, especially for a highly driven, successful person. Bill Mayer. TV personality. He was talking about the crucifixion and said, I just don't get the thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins. It's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me, he says. I can cleanse myself. Wow. That's an insight on the fact that he thinks he can earn it, that he can do it alone. And that's why when Warren Buffett donated 85% of his $44 billion fortune to charity, he said, there's a lot of ways to get to heaven, but this is a pretty great way. Wow. What is he saying? I can do it. I have control of my eternal inheritance. I'm successful enough. I can earn it on my own. So this is very difficult. The only way to have victory over the God of power is to admit defeat, <laughs> that we can't do it. Yes, this God, the God of power, keeps you from admitting defeat. 
So these gods are at war within us. And there's this eternal power struggle. In verse 19, Jesus goes to the very heart of what this man's question is. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know these commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Honor your father and mother. And in verse 21, here's how the man responds. I kept all these commandments since I was a boy. You see, Jesus tried to help him with the appropriate response. And the man should have said, I believe this. You know what? I'm not good. I haven't kept all these commandments. I can't do it. He doesn't say that. And instead, he says, oh, 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 I've done all of these things since I was a boy. I say baloney, hogwash. What he's doing is what many of us in the church can get caught up in. It's very possible for you to make spiritual success a false god. So maybe you keep all the rules. You're at church every time the door opens. You read your Bible, you memorize scripture, you pray, you fast. And like this man, you have great confidence in your spiritual success. I have kept all of these since I was a boy or a girl. Okay, good for you, but let's get to the heart of the matter of what Jesus tries to tell this man. In verse 22, Jesus takes aim at the God, the primary God that sits on the throne of this man's heart. He says, when Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, this man walked away sad, anguish, because he was a man of great wealth. Folks, I don't think this is all about his wealth. It's not all about his wealth. This is about correction from Jesus Christ. This is about what's controlling his life. And this is about following Jesus. He didn't want to do that. And he walks away. Or walks away. So what are some of the signs that the God of power is controlling your life? First off, I think to ask yourself the question, am I defensive? Am I prideful? Do you rarely accept correction, or ask others to forgive you? This guy went away sad because he couldn't accept God's correction in his life. Another idol replaced God, and in his sadness, that idol spoke loud and clear. I want to tell you that followership is just as vital as leadership. Followership is just as vital as leadership. Do you love discipline and correction when that takes place in your life? When I first started officer training school in the Air Force, I hated it. Yeah, that's me, the one in the middle with the Opie, Howdy Doody, Bobby Brady smile. <laughs> first Lieutenant Jonathan Coleman, and this was right before I went to officer training school. When I got to Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, I absolutely hated it because they started yelling at me and I was doing everything wrong. And I scowled at that correction. 
And I was disciplined by many push-ups because I was so defensive to the training. I didn't like the humility that it was causing inside of Chaplain First Lieutenant Jonathan Coleman. But then I remember that something clicked in my brain during my training. Thank God it was early on. I realized that these people who were training me were forming me into a United States Air Force officer. A light went on. It changed everything. I started to welcome the training. I actually started thanking them for the training. Thank you for correcting me, sir. I welcomed it. And I grew as an officer exponentially. My friends, God's correction is so good for you. It is. Think about this young, rich ruler. He asked the Son of God a very direct question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him specific correction, specific guidance as it pertained to his life and life system, systems. And it bounced off of him. He walked away sad for the best advice for his eternal soul. He walked away. Proverbs 12.1 and Proverbs 16.18 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Isn't that pretty, pretty direct there in Proverbs? 16.18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The second sign of God's power taking control of your life is when you're ungrateful and discontent with your realities. When you have an attitude that the world or, or that God owes you something, that's a sign. It's been said that gratitude gives birth to a lot of virtues. We rarely say genuine words or thank you to people or thank you to God. We're rarely content with ourselves. And that spills over out of our, our negative life, our negative ungratefulness and, and discontentment. And it spills over on others. First Chronicles 16 says, Oh, give thanks for the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. And His steadfast love wants to endure forever in you and through you by His grace. It can't be earned. When we give gratitude for that grace, when we're content in that grace, it transforms our lives. God gets all the credit for our transformation. And this helps dethrone that God of success and power. The next thing, the third sign that the gods of power have taken control of your life is when you're jealous or, or selfish. You ever just wanted to not celebrate other people's victories, only your own? When we want to celebrate other people's victories... And really spotlight them and cheer them on. That keeps all these things, these things out of our lives. Being jealous and selfish. James 3.16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Another sign that God's power to take control is when you must stay busy or feel self-reliant. 
getting a a higher salary is all you strive for, having more authority or seeking more and more respect from other people and caring so much what other people think of you, and that becomes the busyness of your mind. And you rarely stop to think about who really is in charge of your life. So how do we keep things into perspective? How do we get a healthy view of power and not have that power become idolatry? King David really shows us. In 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he says, For everything, indeed everything, comes from you, God. We have simply given back to you what is yours. Everything is God's. Everything. All of who you are is God. Here's the most powerful man, King David. No one was as wealthy or had more authority in Israel than King David. From leading sheep to leading all of Israel, God chose this guy who was smallest and last in line for this power and authority. And 40 years later, as David was about to hand over his kingdom to his son Solomon, David demonstrated that he had come to one, know one great truth. And the power that he had been given was to be utilized for God's glory. Look at Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven, in the heavens and on earth, is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as heard above all. Both riches and honor come from you and rule over you. And in your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. This gives us a really keen insight that the powerful person who understands this has the responsibility, my friends, to reflect God's glory to those they live and work among. Do you do that? When we give all the glory and honor to God, everything else falls in the line with what we do, who we are, and what we shall be. And when King David came to learn this truth, that that the powerful person who understands this has a responsibility to reflect that glory to those he lived and reigned and worked among. Think about that for a moment. Reflect on that. All the success that you have has been given by God's hand to you. We see this truth play out in the Apostle Paul. He had a highly successful Pharisee kind of life before he met Christ. Remember, Paul was named Saul. He was trained in the finest uh, rabbi tradition, the school of Gamaliel, the Pharisee of Pharisees. And Paul was on that career path that that could lead him to become head of the Jewish council. And one day he was on the road to Damascus. And you know that. He was ready to persecute the church once again. And he was struck blind by Jesus. And he encountered the risen Jesus and living Jesus on that road. And his life was totally changed. But that change didn't come easy. Saul had power. He had reputation. He invested in his career path. 
But now everything, Jesus stripped everything away to rebuild his life. And and though Saul became Paul, the persecutor became the persecuted. The hunter became the hunted. The Pharisee became an apostle. And while that change wasn't easy, God used that change within him to be one of the most greatest Christian ambassadors to all of the Roman world and Gentile world. He had the most significant impact of the spreading of the gospel throughout, everywhere. And Saul laid down that Jewish power to follow Jesus, and God gave him a new name, and God gave him a new job. And he would spread the good news about Jesus, and it would inspire him to write some of the greatest theological words ever written. It's the part of the New Testament that we have that has enriched our lives. In Philippians Paul is writing his last letter to his favorite church, and he's looking back over his life. And on some levels, he had lost everything that he once held dear, and he's held in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before the evil emperor Nero. And he knows that he will not likely survive, yet the main thing throughout the entire letter is for him to rejoice in all things, even the mess that he found himself in. Look at Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He said, but whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Why would Paul do this? Why would he downplay the biggest accomplishments? He lost all his titles, his reputation, his career path. He had lost it all because of Jesus. Yet he still had this hope. How? He was changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. And he was so focusing, focused on this new life that he had found in Jesus. Look at, look at Philippians 3, 8 through 11. So he said, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul is now... Keeping score in another way. And it helped him overcome the loss of his present circumstances because he knew that God's way was better. And he came to know that he was saved by grace through faith. And he was being transformed and changed by Jesus Christ. We have to remember that power and success of a person comes from God's own hand, not from our own. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And I'm going to pause after each question so you can reflect on these questions just for a little bit. And as you reflect, I want you to reflect honestly and make sure the God of power or God of success does not have a hold on you. First question, how has your life up to now been defined by achievement how has your life up to now been defined by achievement
how do you define your identity to others or to yourself? When do you struggle most with pride? How well do you handle criticism from people? What is your definition of success? And what drives you to be successful? And in what ways has God provided for you and equipped you to succeed in His purpose for your life? The invitation from God has not changed. God always daily invites you to make Him Lord of life, not just parts of your life your entire life the whole shebang God wants you to let him have the throne of your heart and how you leave today and the daily choices you make each day and walk away either glowing and rejoicing or like that rich young ruler sad or in anguish Has Jesus softened your heart to become a position of glory in your life? What culminates the thinking of Paul about Jesus is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is what healthy power looks like, my friends. This is what Jesus looks like. This is what he did. This is how he used his power. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found as an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold the God of power, Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to worship that one true God in Him. I want to bow to this God, Jesus my Lord. I want to be like Him in every way, in that submission and find him placed on the throne of my heart so that it's operational in every area of my life. Don't you? Will you pray with me? 
God, we want to dust off the seat of the throne of our hearts and have you sit there and point and live and rule and reign and direct and give us guidance and program and and help us to live out your glory in our lives. And when we do that, you're going to transform the systems of all of who we are. And we're going to draw from your power and your sufficiency and your grace and your strength. God, may we live a life like this, a life like Jesus, and be a blessing to ourselves and those around us. May it be so. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, And all God's people said, amen.